Welcome to Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022, a series by the Planetary Podcast, part of the Civil Society Celebration and Declaration for Stockholm Plus 50, a half century later after the historic 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear high-level political and public figures, academics, and influential activists discuss what should be the content of the high-level declaration foreseen for 2022. Our planet faces a myriad of catastrophic environmental challenges, from climate change to widespread biodiversity loss to desertification. The science is clear. The state of our global environment is deteriorating at an unprecedented rate, highlighting the need for fundamental transformative changes across our legal, economic, social, political, and technological spheres. Thus, there is an urgent need to reach a common ground within civil society and around it build a civil society declaration with the potential to be the needed starting point for a paradigm shift towards a safe and sustainable future for our global community. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss the challenges posed by climate change, as well as possible solutions to help create a stabilized Earth and ensure that the Civil Society 2022 Declaration can be a true game changer. Now, here is your host, founder, and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello, and welcome to Common Home Conversations. Today, we're joined by Lionel Chami, Special Advisor at the Global Pad Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lionel. Thank you. Can you tell us about your work with the Global Pact for the Environment? So the Global Pact for the Environment exists because there's a deficiency in international environmental law, which is the legal framework that governs the environment at the global level. And the problem we have is that there's a deficiency at the level of implementation, so we're not implementing the current norms enough. We're not doing it sufficiently. We're not doing it efficiently enough. And we have also a deficiency at the level of lawmaking. So we don't have the right laws to tackle the extent of the problem. And that's where the Global Pact for the Environment comes in. The Global Pact for the Environment is basically a consensus text among the biggest environmental lawyers of the world to lay down what is needed in one text to reform environmental law and governance on a global level. So to get back to my work, what I do concretely is try to convince states, state representatives, NGOs, scholars, etc., that this is a good idea, that we have a fundamental problem at the level of lawmaking and at the level of implementation, and that this pact could help resolve these problems. That's fantastic. Now, in response to the latest IPCC report, the UN Secretary General called the report a code red for humanity, stressing the need for immediate action on climate. Globally, temperatures have already risen 1.2 degrees and continue to climb. And despite the intensifying adverse impacts of climate change, policies have not yet risen to this immense challenge. How would a global pact for the environment help us better address the environmental crises facing our global community? That's a very good question because it tackles what is really the heart of the problem, which is global warming, climate change. Now, what's different with the global pact for the environment is that it tackles these issues not from the perspectives of, you know, targets and financial goals like you have in the Paris Agreement, which is the global treaty on climate change. The Global Pact for the Environment, as the name suggests, 
is global in scope. It means that it addresses the environment as a whole. It doesn't just look at the seas, the climate, biodiversity, the wetlands, the deserts, etc. It takes the environment as a whole, and it will help to fight climate change by delivering environmental justice. So the core of the project is really a question of justice, because climate change is a very unjust phenomenon. Rich countries, rich people will, you know, be harmed less from climate change than poorer countries or poor people, you know, depending on the geography, on who you are in society, etc. So the Global Pact for the Environment seeks to recognize the environmental rights and duties of everyone, to enshrine on a global level the right of everyone to live in a healthy environment, and to recognize the duties of states and corporations to take care of the environment. So that's the big difference with what we have right now. It's a question of justice, and it's a question of addressing the environment, not through you know segmented silos, but really as a whole. Absolutely. I think that's a challenge when we work on environmental issues. We get so focused on one issue that we tend to work in silo. So it's excellent that the pact is global in scope and addresses the environment as a whole. Now, what are some of the biggest challenges of establishing this pact? Now, obviously, when you're working in international law, you have to dabble in diplomacy. Diplomacy means convincing states that what you want to do is right, and it's right not just for you, but it's right for them. So when we introduced the pact in 2017, 2018, at the UN General Assembly, you have to convince 193 states, different states, different diplomacies, different agendas, different everything, that this pact is good for them. Not just good for the planet, but that it's in their interest. And you see that this is one of the biggest issues of environmental governments of how we reach deals on an international level is that we have to find the consensus between so many players that have so many diverging interests. And sometimes it's like an ego battle between states and you know they sort of get lost in that battle and forget about the big issues, forget about the long term, forget about you know, the damage that climate change is actually causing to the environment. And they're forgetting about the emergency. So to convince, I think, all these stakeholders, all these different states, corporations, civil society, people with different outlooks, people with, you know, who don't really understand how the law works, who have different interests, perspectives, I think that's the biggest challenge, to put everyone on the same table and get them to agree on a single text. Yes, that's always a challenge. Now, which states have been the biggest supporters of the pact thus far? The biggest supporters of the pact uh, can be found, I think, first of all, among the community of environmental lawyers. So an environmental lawyer is basically a lawyer that deals with environmental law. And it's these people who are at the forefront of the crisis. They're the people defending people whose houses are being destroyed or affected by pollution. They're people who've been really at the forefront of tackling the environmental crisis, of tackling pollution, of tackling climate change through a justice perspective, using the law. And they're the people who are realizing that among all the things that we could be doing, the law is not doing enough. The law is not ambitious enough. It doesn't have the norms that we need to achieve the targets that we put. You know, so we, we need to raise that threshold. And I think the lawyers were the first to notice that. 
And when the lawyers notice that, you start feeling, you know, an interest among NGOs who usually used to deal with the issue through public opinion campaigns, through other means than the law. Then, like, with the climate cases going on in Europe and the U.S., everything that's linked to climate litigation all around the world, you start seeing, you know, more appreciation from NGOs towards using the law as a way to to tackle the environmental crisis. So first, lawyers, second, NGOs, and third of all, states, because some states are feeling that they're doing enough on a national scale, that's their feeling, and they feel that, you know, other countries should be doing more. So there are a lot of countries, like countries in Latin America, in Europe, and sub-Saharan Africa, who feel that we need this pact because we need to create a level playing field all around the world to create a common standard to protect the environment and so that there's no free riders environmental protection. And this is why you get states that also support this project. And, you know, I think there's an interest, a growing interest among scientists because they're seeing that, you know, they're not experts in law, but they're saying that what we currently have in terms of policy, in terms of legislation is not enough. So the project is also getting traction among scientists who feel that, you know, the, the tool of law should be doing more. Our scientists are people who've scrutinized the environment for a long, long time, and they're frustrated because they're issuing these reports, they're writing down all these drafts and communiques and media reports, etc., and the media reports on them sometimes, but they're not feeling this traction among governments to do something concrete, something long-lasting, something which you know can enact transformative change at the level of law. So to sum it up, we've had support from lawyers first, NGOs, states, and scientists, as well as all the corners of civil society. That's wonderful. Now, just to follow up on that, what can civil society do to support the pact? I think that can be summed up in three words. Make it famous. Because so long as the pact can be ignored as, you know, the legal response to climate change is not seen as indispensable by governments, it can be discarded, it can be forgotten about. But by making this proposal famous, not just, you know, the pact in itself, but the idea that law can do more to protect the environment, I think this is fundamental. And I think, you know, by disseminating the idea that the law can do more, that we can use the tool of the law to reclaim our right to a healthy environment, I think that's the most important thing we can do. You mentioned the right to a healthy environment. Can you please elaborate on that and what that means? So the right to a healthy environment is a fundamental right. Like you have a human right to freedom of speech, to property, to all of these things. You have also rights that concern the environment, you know, because the environment is the precondition to the exercise of human rights. If you live in an environment that is not conducive to your good health or your, to your well-being, if you live next to a garbage dump or to electricity plant that causes a lot of pollution, then your health is in danger. Then the capacity for you to exercise these rights, these fundamental human rights of yours, and to live a dignified life in society is threatened by this unhealthy environment. And this is why a lot of jurists have come up with the idea that people have a right to a healthy environment, without which they are unable to enjoy the rest of their human rights. 
And the right to a healthy environment is the first article of the Global Pact for the Environment. It's been there since 2017, and it's really the, the spearhead of the Global Pact. Absolutely. I think the right to a healthy environment is essential. I mean, here in the United States, there are a lot of issues surrounding environmental justice. And specifically, one example that comes to mind is within the state of Louisiana. It's an area that stretches 85 miles from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, and it's been dubbed Cancer Alley. And it's one of the most polluted places in the United States. The area is just littered with oil refineries and petrochemical plants. Around 150, I believe, was the last estimate. And those plants have caused a spike in the cancer rates 50 times the national average in the area. Wow, that's impressive in a bad way. But you see, these are the sort of problems that exist all around the world. In Lebanon, where I come from, there's a very big carbon plant that runs on fuel, a power plant. And they've also noticed that, you know, they've done studies, etc. And they've noticed that the air pollution caused by this plant is also causing cancer rates that are 10, 20 times higher than the national average. So we have these environmental injustices. It's unjust because people don't choose to live here. They just happen to live here and they can't move. And they're just bound to suffer from this sort of stuff. And very often they don't have the right environmental information, you know, because you feel that you have symptoms of something that's happening because you're living in an unhealthy environment, but you don't know for sure. You didn't have the right to participate when they built that project. You didn't have the right to access environmental justice when such projects were made, or you didn't have the right to contest them. So this is why the environment is not just a question of targets and uh, financial objectives. It's also a question of justice, because the end goal is to have people live in a dignified environment. Absolutely. Now, in your recent article, you discussed a principled approach to international environmental governance. Within the article, you note that the environmental crises we are facing could be turned into an opportunity to, quote, rebuild world order around the keystone of environmental protection. Can you elaborate on the benefits of this approach? Certainly. When you look at geopolitics today, the current world order, you see that there's an inadequation between what we have and the current state of play. So we have institutions that were built in 1945 and uh, and the 1940s as a follow-up to World War II. But the world has changed. World War II is over. The Cold War is over. And we're living in a multipolar world where a lot of states that used to be ignored, that weren't great powers yet, you have India, you have China, Brazil, South Africa, Nigeria. And this rise, which is justified, is causing disorder to the um, geopolitical world order. So what we're saying in that article is that we can disagree on many things. We can disagree on trade. We can disagree on the economy. We can disagree on a whole lot of things. But the one thing we have to get along on is the environment because it's common to everyone because it's a butterfly effect. You know, an ecological phenomenon like the Amazon being a carbon sink affects the rest of humanity. Wildfires in Australia affect the rest of humanity. So we need to have some sort of coordination, some sort of common foundation that allows us to build together, to have an international governance system that deals with the environment in an efficient manner. And it's a way to get along, you know, because if countries talk to each other through the environment, it can open the gate for countries to talk to each other on other subjects. But it's very important 
to keep that line of communication open. And, you know, there were many examples from the Cold War, say, when the U.S. and the USSR were disagreeing on many subjects. However, they were discussing openly environmental issues, you know, as if, you know, they weren't in conflict on other issues. And that probably helped resolve a certain number of conflicts in a peaceful manner. So this is what we mean by rebuilding world order around the keystone of environmental protection. So there are more than 250 multilateral environmental agreements. How would an agreement on fundamental principles strengthen the implementation of already existing conventions? That's a tough one, because you have, if you look at the system of how the environmental framework works on the global level, it turns out that we have more than, like, you said 250, but, you know, other estimates say 500. So you have a big mess of multilateral environmental agreements that are concluded every year between a lot of states, and there's no coordination among all these. You know, it's like if you have a puzzle, but the parts of it aren't linked to each other. There's no coordination between one agreement and the other. So what we're saying is that let's pick up from all these agreements the common principles and the common principles that sort of bind this whole order and let's recognize them in a fundamental agreement and in that way we'll create a lot of links between these conventions because we'll make these conventions linked to each other. Let me give you an example. In the Paris Agreement, you have an implicit principle of progression. So every five or six years, states have to come up with national climate plans. They're called nationally determined contributions in the UN lingo. And these plans have to be renewed every five years. And the new plan has to be more ambitious than the previous one. So from this, you can deduct that there's a principle of progression, that states have to do more and more, and they can't go backwards. They can't backslide on environmental commitments. So one idea would be to take this principle of progression and apply it to all the spheres of environmental protection, to say that you know from now on, at the national level, concerning all domains, and at the international level as well, states will be forbidden to backslide on environmental commitments, it'd be to say that from this point onwards, there's no going back, you know, that we have to go forward. That's one example. But, you know, you can have a lot of principles on which you can give a lot of examples as well. So the global pact would be akin to a constitution. When you have a constitution in a state, you have a lot of values that then get disseminated in all the laws. You know, the laws have to comply to the values of the constitution. And we sort of need this at the international level to solve all these differences between the different multilateral environmental agreements. Now, with the growing public awareness of the severity of the climate emergency, do you think that member states are ready to adopt a political declaration reviving the idea of an ambitious global pact for the environment at Stockholm Plus 50? Well, we certainly hope so, but we have to translate the potential of civil society. We have to translate this growing public awareness into a real movement, into something that can affect change in a specific way. You know, you have to focus this movement into the channel of environmental justice. If civil society unites, the big NGOs, a citizen movement, to demand you know, more from states with regards to environmental law, especially with the Stockholm Plus 50, I think it's a great opportunity to unite and to demand something concrete from states. 
I think if this happens, we could definitely get a very positive outcome out of Stockholm Plus 50. Discussions centered around a civil society draft declaration kicked off in October at Stockholm Plus 49. What do you think needs to be included for it to be a true game changer? For it to be a true game changer, I think it would it would have to be really ambitious. And it can be ambitious in two different ways. It can be a principled declaration, so a declaration that recognizes fundamental principles. And this is not really new. The 1972 Stockholm Declaration enshrined a lot of principles. It laid down the rules, without recognizing them, of the principle of uh, you know the right to healthy environment and the duty to take care of the environment. The Rio Declaration, which was adopted in 1992, laid down also some other principles, like the principles of access to information, access to environmental justice, public participation in environmental affairs. So Stockholm Plus 50 and the declaration that will be adopted at UNEP at 50 need to follow this movement and they need to recognize the new principles of environmental law. That means it can recognize the right to a healthy environment. It can recognize the principle of non-regression, which prevents backsliding on environmental regulations. It can adopt the principle of progression, that from now on we only go forward in terms of environmental protection. It can enshrine the principle of intergenerational equity, you know, to create and to, to take into account the interests of future generations. So there's all these ways in which the 2022 declaration can be a successful principles declaration. What is lacking is willpower from states. Another solution would be for the 2022 declaration to be a roadmap declaration, to lay down a process with targets and milestones and everything for the adoption of a global treaty on the environment. And that's a process that uh, is inspired from other stuff that's happened at the UN. This is how the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted. You know, a bunch of NGOs pressed the states to start a process, to lay down targets, etc. And a few years later, you had the, the SDGs being adopted. They're far from ideal, but it's still something. And we're thinking that, well, if states do not want or, or are not ready to recognize new principles in the 2022 declaration, they can lay down a roadmap. They can say, okay, we're going to start this process. We're going to lay down some targets, milestone, and in a few years, we'll have an agreement on the principle. And this is, for example, what happened with the, with the recent Escazú agreement. It took eight years, but at the end of eight years, the states of Latin America and the Caribbean region adopted a regional deal on environmental justice. And we're thinking that you know, if we could replicate this at a global level, this would really constitute progress and be potentially a game changer for the environment. All right, and there you have it. The environment is common to us all. We should have a common foundation that allows us to build together an international governance system that addresses the environment as a whole. We should agree to a set of common principles and recognize them in a fundamental agreement. We can use the tool of law to reclaim our right to a healthy environment. The Global Pact for the Environment seeks to recognize the environmental rights and duties of everyone, to enshrine on a global level the right of everyone to live in a healthy environment. It can help fight climate change by delivering environmental justice and recognizing the duties of states and corporations to take care of our environment. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022. 
Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in next time to continue the conversation. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.